Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So, Wherever you buy books, audio, and video, pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. This is part two of our exploration into the unmade adaptations of Frank Herbert's Dune. We are joined by the founder of DuneInfo.com, Mark Bennett, and actor Jesse Merlin. We are going to pick up our conversation right where we left off in the last episode. So this treatment he wrote, and we'll have Jesse read a little bit of it. Um, This feels like the kind of treatment that was written to give somebody high up at a studio who is never going to read the book because it it almost reads like a Wikipedia plot summary Mm. of the book in places where one could argue, like, what are we paying this guy for? He's not really adapting. He's just like telling us what the book is. But that's my guess is that's what this was. 
is like we just have to show somebody what this movie would be when for the most part like the new one it's kind of just like let's just do the book like we don't need to pointlessly change much although they do make some strange changes in this which we can talk about but uh, i think this i think he was uh commissioned to write three drafts and this is the first breakdown and storyboard as it's referred to in the in the documentation uh, so have you ever read break- any actual mark have you read any scripts that rospo wrote for this or are those not they're not out there yeah, i think i think he just did this one breakdown and then it seems like the contract <laughs> negotiations broke down or something and they started looking at other uh, screenwriters um, but we'll have Jesse start here, page four. And, and before this, the first several pages are are literally just like explaining what this universe is to the reader. Uh, it's kind of like a Cliff's Notes of the book. All right. Before titles, we introduce the main setting of our story, the vast sand ocean of Dune, set beneath a glaring, wavering heat warp. Soldiers with swords chase a figure cloaked like an Arab. The man fights furiously with flashing strokes of his scimitar. He is cut down. The soldiers steal his pouch of orange powder, the precious melange. Traces of what would seem to be the same orange powder are faintly perceptible on the sand underfoot. With wanton cruelty, the soldiers tear the wounded man's body from a suit which sheathes his body like a frogman's outfit. We will learn later about this strange garment when our protagonist will have to wear one. Warned that a worm could be in the vicinity, the soldiers flee to a helicopter, which then alights into the heat haze. The man is left to die. Blood from his wounds sizzles into nothing upon the incandescent sands. Crazed by the sun and thirst, the dying, delirious man rants about the messianic hopes of his race, the hidden, lost, abused people of the universe. They are the Fremen who await the coming of the mother and child, godlike figures who will deliver them unto flowing water and verdant green. He drags himself across a furrow, the size of a riverbed which cuts through the natural wave conformation of the sand dunes. We will learn that it was created by the passage of a giant worm. The sun sets. The rolling dunes gleam white under the star blaze of the crystal clear desert night. The Fremen dies. Titles begin. A band of Fremen discovers the dead man. Their leader states paradoxically, that there is still life in the body. Tiny figures in a landscape, the Fremen hurry the corpse across the desert. In a hidden cave, the body is placed in a sarcophagus-like apparatus. Fire is blasted through it, titles end. The leader holds the yield of the transformation. In one hand, a bag of sloshing water, or life as he calls it. In the other, a fistful of ashes. Now we are in outer space. Spaceships approach from different directions, converging alongside one another. The fleet descends toward a blue-hued planet. It is the Emperor's planet, a world of seas filled with sail-powered fishing vessels. If it were not for the spaceship that we have just seen, one could easily imagine the Great Hall to be the court of the Emperor of China, to which have been summoned the warrior kings, decked in ornamental armor of medieval Europe, Arabia, and Asia. The noblemen of the universe have assembled at the imperial court. The emperor, himself rigged out in the menacing uniform of his dreaded troops, the Sardaukar, addresses Duke Leto of House Atreides and the Baron of House Harkonnen. Two men who are mortal enemies ascend toward the throne. They represent the opposites of noble breeding. Leto's taut, aquiline features bear the stamp of a just leader. 
The blubbery mass of the Baron's imposing bulk hardly conceals the traits of a decadent and vicious despot. The Baron's uniform is a ceremonial version of that of the soldiers who brutalized the Fremen upon the sands of Dune. Because of a marked production slowdown of the precious drug melange on Dune, the Emperor relieves the Baron, who controls numerous planets, of his rule there and transfers Dune to Duke Leto. It is to be Leto's only thief and his new home planet. Duke Leto accepts his new post stoically. He senses a trap. Thoughts here? Um, I, yeah, I just uh, another... Sorry, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, no, I just... I'll let you go. I mean, I was just saying, I, I just find it interesting that this and then the previous draft, they they love, he they were very fascinated by the dehydration process of the human body. <laughs> Something you don't see in the other versions. I just found that very fascinating. Oh, yeah, this one for back really then. leans into it's been yeah. opening credits of the movie, basically. Uh, and also, obviously, as we kind of talked about previously, this as far as like smoothing over some of the setup and this has, I think is interesting getting the Baron and Leto face to face bowing before the emperor. Um, also no. And again, you know, who knows what would have happened if they actually went in production, but neither this or the uh, previous treatment we read have the Baron's uh, suspend or uh, what do you call mm. them? Sus Suspenses. Suspensers. Yeah. So we can float around. I wonder if they just thought, that was going to be too hard to do and not look silly. Cause obviously back then it would have been yeah. very much just yeah. a guy floating on a wire. Uh <laughs> it just, it is very much a 70s script. So you replace the ornithopters with helicopters and they communicate with the guild with a telex machine, don't they? In this, which is <laughs> I love it. with the ticker tape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that he pulls some of these nuggets that Dune nerds will see, like describing Duke Leto as aquiline. Frank probably does that about a hundred times in the book. He really leans on the bird-like expression from the Atreides eagle. Isn't that one of the standards? Is that yeah. actual birds? They're they're all about birds in that family, you know. Uh, one minor change I thought was weird choice in this one is that the Atreides home planet uh, is fields and farmlands rather than being kind of an ocean. Mm -hmm based society and in this one it's the the emperor's planet right. is the ocean one that just i don't know you know almost feels like an error because i always thought there was something so nice about the people from mm -hmm. the ocean planet having to go to dune um who but who knows why that would have been changed and this yet again in the reverend mother scene doesn't have the gam jabbar or any of the other iconography with the box um she's just kind of using psychic powers on Paul. Uh, this one also has a whole thing too when they get to Arrakis where Gurney and Idaho are gone and they think that maybe they've turned treasonous and then they just show up drunk because they couldn't find the Fremen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> There's a great scene in uh, the, the Dune novel, uh, which people refer to as Drunken Idaho, uh, where Duncan comes in drunk and uh, mouths off at Jessica. So I don't know if that was paying homage to that. But, yeah, uh, maybe trying Duncan to. Idaho. <laughs> uh, I was also say this also contains, uh, and I'm curious if we'll get any of this in part two of the new movies, but it is a part of the books, which is Howitt, who is Duke Leto's mentat, 
is very suspicious of Jessica always so that when the shit goes down with the Harkonnens, he thinks it was probably her who betrayed them to the Baron. Um, and this is a, they keep part of that in this um, again, all the things that they feel like you would do in a TV version of dude, where you have nothing but time to fill up all these episodes, but just some nice palace intrigue. Um, and see, this also has uh, what is this metallic sphere that contains atomic explosives. Yeah. This tries to get in with the atomic explosives, which were another key part of the book, what are they, the family explosives or what do they call family them? Atomics, in the yeah. Family atomics. Do you want to explain yeah. that like, for the listeners who maybe? Yeah. So in the uh, backstory of the book, um, there was a, a war with thinking machines. So thinking machines are banned because why you've got the Mentats, the human computers. And as part of that, there was the final battle was atomics. Uh, and so thinking machines are banned and the use of atomics against uh, humans is also banned. Uh, but every house still has their secret house atomics um, for <laughs> for whatever purpose. And in this, we've got Gurney carrying him like Atlas on his shoulder, which would have made an, an interesting image. But uh, yeah. that just makes me think. Speaking of the the stand, the whole thing with uh, Trash Can Man from the stand, where he goes and gets the nuke and has to bring it back to Las Vegas, and it's like slowly melting him from the radiation poisoning. <laughs> um, probably they wouldn't have gone that route, but. Uh, yeah, because it, it is an, also an important part of the book, right, that uh, Paul ends up using uh, Atomic to breach the wall uh, in Arrakis with the Fremen, and that's kind of what allows them to win. I don't know what they'll end up doing in the new movie. Yeah, I think great scene in the Lynch's movie where they all don the, the white uh, radiation suits and scream Atomics and big explosion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this has, and again, uh, my, my memory is spotty of all this stuff. So correct me if this is incorrect, but this has a whole thing where Paul goes out and like touches a worm with his hand. And I feel like the idea of taming a worm, they don't, they don't seem in this to use the idea of the hooks to get you up on the worm to write it. It's more like, I always made me think of in Crocodile Dundee when Crocodile Dundee does the weird thing that makes the water buffalo like go to sleep in the street. Um, that's not from the books, right? Paul doesn't go up and like touch a worm. No, it's not in the book. Uh, the, the worms don't like water, so that part of it is correct. But it seems like Paul's first night in the desert, he discovers about 18 mysteries of Arrakis very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also love that in this treatment, there's an intermission uh, where it just says, <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it actually it's very, the timing wise. So I don't remember which producer it was, but when the new Dune was in the works and they announced that it was going to be two movies. And I think everyone was like, Oh, I wonder where they're going to stop. And one of the producers said, well, there's a very obvious point in the book with which you would stop. And I don't know about you guys, but I was like, I don't know what that point is. I don't feel like there's yeah. a super yeah, obvious he, he one. Said it was a he said it was a there's a time jump and the the first novel is broken down into three books and there's a time jump between the end of book two and book three um so that's what he was referring to and some of the early version uh, one of the early versions of the script for the new dune did end at the it end, did of end book okay two. uh but this ends very much in a similar spot even 
but I guess it's just an intermission. The movie doesn't. And this feels like a TV cliffhanger. But it's ba- it's during the scene where Paul is battling uh, the Fremen, you know, uh, in the honor of his mom. Uh, and this, the intermission is like the end of a TV episode where Paul's like poised to kill the guy he's fighting. And then we go to the intermission and then it resumes when we come back. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of odd. I mean, I know. I mean, if you go see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen, there is an intermission and growing up with HBO my dad would watch these big epic movies. There was always an intermission and there would be like a time clock ticking down to when the movie starts. I mean, so it was a thing back in the, in this time period, you know, like today they'll, you know, like casino or all these movies will come out. Casino is old already. I don't know why I'm bringing that up, but like these three hour epic long movies we watched today in the theaters back in the seventies, sixties, there would be intermissions uh tarantino did that with uh the hateful eight when you saw that in the theaters yeah i feel like back with the old movies though was always kind of like and now we have resolved this part of the story intermission (laughs) it it usually wasn't like an old-timey serial where it's like you're right i'm hanging from a cliff (laughs) intermission as though oh no they might leave during intermission but now they'll good point they'll stick around to see if paul kills this guy um but after we get back from intermission uh you know, the story basically continues forward and then kind of the big, long, crazy sequence in this where Paul goes on like his spirit quest out in the desert. Uh, in the books, he falls into like a basically a coma for like weeks. And when he right, and then he comes out and that's when he's kind of developed his more heightened powers. They don't have that. This has where he. He drowns a baby worm in a pool and plunges into the water himself and creates the water of life here and then has... You missed out the best bit, which is Paul actually rides the worm into the siege and into the water. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) He brings it down. In my mind, just that was almost like a comedy special effect when I was (laughs) like the Goonies going down the water slide or something where Paul's just riding the worm like Slim Pickens from... Doctor Strange Fremen trying to move a piano up the stairs. He's like, oh, the Fremen carrying the big pane of glass across the the road, and he smashes right through it, creates the water of life, uh, like trips super balls, transcends time and space. Describing all of this, Rospo keeps putting Paul in quotes to highlight the idea that like Paul's not really in this scene, but he's basically like walking through rooms with the other characters he like sees fade rautha uh fighting paul's old dueling robot and like learning all of paul's moves uh i mean what did you guys think of this whole set piece the um the lynch version has something not too dissimilar when paul's taking the water of life paul does see what's happening uh in the emperor's throne room so he does know that the guild are, are coming to wipe out all the life on arrakis with the emperor so in that part it's it's kind of similar but the whole setup of riding the worm into the pool and <laughs> <laughs> swimming around in a huge you know taking a bath which i don't think any fremen has ever done <laughs> <laughs> well and this also builds up to and again uh maybe I, i'm just not remembering this correctly from the books but he paul's really obsessed with the navigators from the guild who in this live behind portals where like, like mm-hmm. they like they live in some pocket dimension 
they went through portals 10,000 years ago and they've never emerged from the portals again. And Paul really wants to get these uh, navigators from the other side of the portals. I mean, that's not from the books. They're just like living in tanks, right? Yeah. There is a thing in the book where Paul, when they go on the Highliner, he wants to see a, a guild navigator, but he's told very strongly that he can't even try because that would be disastrous for the house. So there is that curiosity, and certainly no one has seen a guild navigator, uh, apart from the Emperor, I think. Um, but yeah, this this beefs it up a little bit. Beefs it up. All right. Yeah, Chani has to pull Paul out of the water pool to like bring him back into his own body. Uh, Steve, what are you going to say? Oh, no, it, it comes late. Oh, by the way, the dueling robot, I mean, I got, like, so I guess... While he's on the ship coming to Arrakis, he practices on a dueling robot. And that's the robot I, I find it interesting. Fade takes and learns all of his skills off of. But that is yeah. something that that's I mean, that's not in the book. And then that's something that Jodorowsky uses in his Dune as yeah. well. And, and the, the robots are an effigy of Paul. So Fade is effectively fighting Paul. So I don't know if that was going to be, you know, we don't have to do a robot special effect. We'll just have him fighting Paul yeah. robot moves or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting how, um, I mean, I, I find that interesting. That's in both Jorowski's and in this and an interesting way for Fade to learn his, uh, his moves. And uh, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, actually I'll admit I, that made so much sense that I was thinking that probably was from the books. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but although I also, uh, I guess, I guess that wouldn't have been a thinking robot, but you know, no thinking robots in this world. world. The yeah. Butlerian Jihad took care of that. Um, yeah, so, that, so they use the family atomics to breach the wall, get in, kind of follow again the basic story of the book. Paul demands the navigators come out from behind their portals. Uh, no one wants this except for then Count Fenring decides to sell side with paul because he just really wants to see a navigator it's almost the way it plays <laughs> off in this treatment he's kind of like yeah i mean i'm curious too we've been talking about him all these <laughs> uh, i'm gonna betray my emperor out of my own curiosity um paul threatens to kill off the spice let's see here uh yeah immediately the portals after ten thousand years swing open creatures come out of the inner sanctum of the spaceship they resemble stereotyped gray flannel suited businessmen uh a very different interpretation of what the navigators look like here rather than like creepy fish people is how they're usually described the navigators prostrate themselves before paul uh paul swings at once the swords cutting the clothing and the skin it is an artificial sheath which peeled back discloses uh that they're more mutant and creepy and in this they're kind of glowing bright orange um which just made me think of I don't know, the guy from God Told Me To at the end, who you can't look at. Mm -hmm. so oh, I was Cocoon. Oh, well, same idea. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I rewatched Cocoon in my adulthood, I was just like, oh, it almost seems like they ripped off Larry Cohen's God Told Me To with the <laughs> idea of what the aliens look like. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. So this ends. So uh, Aaliyah, to reminding the audience again, the daughter of. Jessica, who is, I guess she's not a mutant. I don't know how you would describe it, but because Jessica was pregnant when she drank the water of life, Aaliyah is essentially born a fully thinking adult. I, I liked her presentation in Lynch's movie 
thought she was good and creepy. But this ends with the idea that uh, Paul carries his the freakish abomination, his sister Aaliyah, in his arms. He vows to erase all the ancient consciousness with stirs within her, to treat her like a baby, to help her be a baby. He teaches her to gurgle and the creature falls asleep. The sun sets upon the desert. The sky thickens with stars. And in the sky, Paul points to a whiff of cloud, the first ever seen over Dune. The water has evaporated from thousands of rotting enemies. So this is also ending kind of like Lynch's movie with the implication that rain is coming to Arrakis, uh, which again, is that, that's, that never happens in any of the Herbert novels, right? Well, in, in the later novels, rain does start to fall on Arrakis, you know, that they terraform the desert into green. Okay. So the way later, that, okay, gotcha. Yeah, and that impacts the worms. Um, so that, that is, you know, if you <laughs> technically it's part of the novels, but not not the first one. What I loved about the ending of this is Aaliyah is basically just born. She's meant to be a couple of years old in the novel, but she's just been born in uh, in this treatment. And she kills the Baron by sticking her, <laughs> her arm oh, in yeah, his right. Sticks her whole <laughs> or her baby arm down his throat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been like really freaky. <laughs> reminded me a little bit of the... Uh, of Ash kill, trying to kill Ripley in Alien with the, oh, the new rolling up the, the weirdest <laughs> yeah, uh, like little, assassination. If you had weapon. a little baby, you could have used that to. Uh, <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knows babies uh, are a choking hazard for adults. Yeah, but between that and the dehydration of humans, like this was going to haunt some kids. Some of this stuff, man. But um, well, at least Baron was uh, not killed by a random extra in this version <laughs> <laughs> there you go exactly but um yeah so that's that's kind of like the last treatment ever released as mark and i could find for the uh, for arthur p jacobs attempt and so after this comes out um let me see where i'm at february 1973 um jacobs has the film budgeted I have the budget and it's 6.8 million. Frank Herbert's bio biography says it was 15 million. So a little off, but um, it was, it is interesting seeing like uh, this movie budgeted, like the, the effects themselves was under a million dollars. Cause they were going to film in Turkey. They'd got a deal where all the below the line costs, uh, which was about 50% of the movie was going to be covered by the Turkish government. So Effectively, yeah. the budget, the film is going to be half price, which wow. made it feasible. Yeah, especially when you go through that treatment of like, how are they going to pull off some of that stuff in there? It's like insane. But uh, yeah, probably some of it would have been cut down. And then, so as Mark was saying, Pellenberg um, didn't, uh, uh, Arthur P. Jacobs didn't uh, use their option to employ Pellenberg further to write the first draft. And then March 6, 1973, a writer's strike happened. And so it was kind of on hold for a little while there. And then um, March 23rd, 1973, Jacobs sent a copy of the Dune novel to Dalton Trumbo. He was in Jamaica where uh, the movie, uh, Steve McQueen, uh, Dustin Hoffman movie. Uh, how do you say Papillon? this? Town? How do you say it? Papillion or Pep? Oh, Papillon. 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 My dad loved that movie. I never got into it, but um, which was remade. I didn't realize a couple of years ago. Oh, yep. Another epic movie with a with an That's intermission. So Is it? <laughs> the original. Yeah, I love it. 
And so he wanted to get that writer to write Dune. And he said he was interest, interested. And then Mark, in your notes, um, he also sent a letter to the other writer of that movie, Lawrence Semple Jr. Jr. Yep. And when I read that name, it's like, that name sounds familiar for some reason. I couldn't figure out why. So I looked him up on IMDb and his name is at the end of all the Batman 1966 uh, TV series. He was uh, a producer on that. So it's like, that's where I know the name from. Oh, wow. What a trip. That's an interesting choice for Dune. <laughs> but weirdly as well the um so the the contacted both the writers of that movie and uh, they also contacted the director of that movie uh if he was interested to direct dune as well so it looks like they were trying to lift the entire yeah. <laughs> directors and writers from papillon to dune which wouldn't have been bad and plus that movie i didn't realize i just looked it up that movie like did super well in the theaters like it it doubled its budget it was like a huge hit uh it's such a different time you know and for such a long movie to rake in that type of money uh then may 15th um arthur p jacobs 1973 he he announced that he had a very excited writer lined up but it wasn't mentioned because it was still um a writer strike going on at that point. And then um, June 24th, 1973, the writer's strike ended. And three days later, June 27th, 1973, Arthur P. Jacobs died of a heart attack. And that's where it ends. But uh, Mark, in your notes, you had some other directors rumored or suggested for this project. And um, I wasn't aware of these guys, to be honest. Yeah. Some, uh, there's a in part of the papers in the uh, Jacobs archives. There's a scrap of paper with four directors listed on, which are. So I'm just trying to bring up. The well, right I, ha- place. I have I have oh, them yeah. here if you want me to read them. Uh, yeah, because I, I I totally missed that when I was going through the papers. I never saw those names. Um, yeah. But, but, so yeah. So one of them was David Lean, uh, who we've already discussed. Um, the uh, one of them was Franklin. Schaffner is it uh, as a Papillon director so he was he was originally one of the names on the list and it looks like they, they went back to him um after during the writer's strike and he did a uh, planet of the apes I didn't realize also yeah so uh, you know Jacobs would have been very familiar with his work uh Fred Zinman who directed a man for all seasons uh which is another Robert Bolt connection I think and uh, Terence Young, who had directed many of the James Bond films, including Doctor No in 1962. Uh, oh, but there's no other mention of Zinnemann or, uh, Zinnemann or Young in the documents. It's just this scrap of paper. It's not clear if those were ideas or where they'd come from. Yeah, but I mean, if it's in his papers, they were definitely throwing those names around for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, 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 I totally missed that when I went through all this stuff. So that's a good find in your part, man. Um, yeah, then that's that's Arthur P. Jacobs' attempt, and then which ends, like I said, June 27, 1973, and then 1974, uh, Variety, and then another paper called Viva. I've never heard of it before. They announced that Jodorowsky was now attached to Dune, as you know, we, we we've documented in that documentary. <laughs> yeah, watch the documentary. Yeah, but I'll, I'll just do a quick uh, cliff notes of April 23rd, 1975. Um, it was scheduled that the production on his version was going to be in mid-March 1975. And July 10th, 1975, Dan O'Bannon came on board to do the effects. Uh, 
December 1975 is where we expect, suspect uh, Giger met Jodorowsky. Um, 1976 is when Dolly was casted. Um, October 1976, Frank Herbert is according to Frank Herbert's bio. He goes to France and learns that uh, Jodorowsky's Dune is out of control, according to him <laughs> in his Bible. He's unhappy. Even though that great scene he loves will be in it, but he's unhappy with Jodorowsky. <laughs> May 1977, Star Wars comes out. And according to Frank Herbert's bio, pisses off the family. 100%. Uh, Star Wars has too many similarities between Dune and how the hell are we going to get this movie made now when both movies feature an evil galactic empire, desolate desert planet, hooded, hooded natives, you know, Luke and Paul are very similar, you know, Star Wars has spice mines and a dune sea. They were very upset by the release <laughs> of Star Wars, especially now that, you know, uh, dune has fallen apart. Jorowski's has fallen apart by this time. So now two versions of Dune has fallen apart and Star Wars is this huge hit and it's more of a swashbuckling, you know, sci-fi movie compared to as we just saw with this new movie. It's very dark. And very 60s and early 70s. And, you know, Star Wars is what kind of turns the tide of Hollywood between that and Jaws to more popcorn features. And how does Dune fit in there? And so 1977, uh, Dan O'Bannon calls Giger to be a part of Alien in, that August. And then in 1978, I mean, that doesn't really have anything to do with this. Sorry. Um, <laughs> my notes for Still some reason. Still interesting. Still interesting. And then 1978 is when Dino De Laurentiis uh, kind of comes on board, Dune, and he commissions Frank Herbert to write a new screenplay. And uh, in 1978, the, the script Herbert turned in was 175 page, pages long. Which is, I mean, wow. how how long is that of, of hours? If a minute, a page is a minute. Like three hours. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, it's a long. And then uh, Herbert, um, according to his bio, becoming friends with Dino De Laurentiis, he helped patch up the script for Flash Gordon during that same year. Um, 1979, January, uh, it's officially announced that Dino De Laurentiis will be making Dune. And Frank Herbert is currently writing the screenplay. And then um, at, towards the end of that year, December 1979, it is announced that Ridley Scott, alien director Ridley Scott, will produce and direct Dune. And Dino De Laurentiis describes it as the most expensive movie of all time. H.R. <laughs> Giga has been signed on again to do... Uh, Especially, you know, everyone sees these sandworm designs online about uh, from Giger. A lot of them confuse it with Jodorowsky's, but that those sandworm designs were for Ridley Scott's. But in the meantime, Ridley Scott will direct the night, the uh, K-N-I-G-H-T, a medieval fantasy movie. And he will treat that project like a Western. Uh, but that never comes out. So I, I always find that interesting. And then um, uh, then. We get into 1980 and then writer Rudy Wurlitzer comes on board. And uh, I guess um, I never could really officially find a date that Herbert uh, kind of tapped out from writing the script. I guess when he turned in that crazy script and I, and I know he said it was even I, I don't have it here in my notes. I read it before that he was even having a, even though he was getting mad at the Arthur P. Jacobs people and at Jodorowsky. Then he tried to write it and then he finally started to understand like, yo, this, this shit's hard. 
he said it's uh, it's it's a translation, and he's he compared it to trying to translate English to Swahili, trying to trying to translate a book mm. to a film. And I think once yeah. he'd uh, done that, as you said, Stephen, that he appreciated that it's not as easy as it looks. Well, and it's like Stephen King, the George Romero version of The Stand before Raspo Pallenberg even came on, King was trying to adapt it himself. And he described it like trying to sit on a suitcase. You know, the, the idea of just like you can't fit all this stuff in there. And he eventually mm. was just like, let someone else do it. Like, I, this is a, too hard of work and obviously too precious, I think, for an author to throw away things they loved from the book. Yeah. It's it. it, Yeah. I can imagine, especially the stand Jesus, but uh, yeah. So October, 1980 Scott Ridley Scott's still on board. Uh, Rudy Wurlitzer hands in the first draft. And then the lensing of the project is supposed to begin at the end of 1981. Uh, Frank Herbert's bio Herbert dislikes this draft. He says, Wurlitzer oversimplified the story almost turning it into a juvenile. Uh, too many key scenes are missing, and it troubled him that the ballast set was omitted. Herbert wanted the film to be the first to introduce an entirely new musical instrument. <laughs> uh, so I guess <laughs> like he was still by that, That's <laughs> yeah. the linchpin of the I mean, dude. Yeah, the, the movie's got one job. You know, it's like the cowbell. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 the deleted scene with Patrick Stewart rocking out on the steel guitar ballast set in the '84 Dune is just Chef's kiss. It's just perfect. <laughs> I agree. I I love that scene too. It's like it's so good. I wish there was more of him in that movie. Me too. Um, I mean, I almost tear up when he meets Paul for the first time. Like the passion Patrick Stewart has when he meets him out um, during You're that young ba- pop. Oh, God. Young pup. It's such a great scene. Oh my God, man. Anyway, all right. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> uh all right. So Scott, Ridley Scott, um, it comes out that he's I don't I heard two different stories about Ridley Scott leaving Dune. One was that his brother passed away. Um, and the other one is this is that he's unable to remain with the project because Blade Runner's financer, financier, Filmways, faced a financial crisis and the production was rescheduled to a time that conflicted with Dune. So those are the two stories I hear, one or the other. I, I don't know which one is the correct one. So, f- from my understanding, his brother died, unex- his brother Frank died unexpectedly. And from, he said, I think it's in one of the alien um, extras in the anthology box set that he said he wanted to stop work on pre-production, which was going to take another several years before the film was being made and jump straight into directing. And Blade Runner came along at the right time. And so he chose to go and work on a project that was being made rather than work on a project that could never be made or may never be finished. Hmm. Hmm. It's very, I mean, Blade Runner now, everyone looks at it and it's this masterpiece. But back then, am I wrong that it didn't do well? No, it was a flop. I mean, I, f- I feel like, and granted, I, you know, I grew up in the generation of after of older people who are already fans of that movie. I mean, that, that seemed like that really typified the idea of a cult film in my childhood was that it was a notorious bomb that lost tons of money, but just a few years later, it was like everyone was so obsessed with it. Certain subset 
And I think that was so influential stylistically. It always makes something feel like it was a hit because how could it not be when it had such a seismic impact on all the other movies that came after it? Yeah, so it's interesting to think that if he made Dune and if Dune was a flop, I guess I wonder if his career would have been going in the same direction. Because I can't see Dune being so huge, especially after coming out. If he would have made it, it coming out around the same time as Return of the Jedi, if it's if it's on the same pathway, you know. But um, anyway. I mean, his uh, Ridley Scott version of Dune at that phase in his career uh, does seem pretty exciting because that was when, you know, that was like when Legend and Blade mm-hmm. Runner, like that was still a phase where he was very much into creating this like, you know, mind boggling visual aesthetic for the worlds he was living in. Now he's become a little bit more of a journeyman director. He's just he's make I don't even understand how he makes so many movies now. I feel like every year we get two new Ridley Scott movies practically. It's like the Stephen King of directing at this point. Yeah, I mean, no doubt he would have done his best to make a, a great Dune. I just worry about him working with uh, Dino De Laurentiis, and because I know he gave Lynch a lot of difficulty with that, even though giving him as much freedom as he had to make that movie weird and his own thing. I mean, I wonder what that movie would have turned into. I mean, we'll never know, but I'm very yeah. fast. I, I would love to, you know. I will never know. So, <laughs> but very, yeah, I would love to have seen, especially if Giger was designing it, you know, cause when you watch Prometheus and you see those sets, I love Prometheus. So I mean, a lot of people are going to be screaming at me right now, but I would have loved to have seen him working with Giger back then for a second time, especially after mm-hmm. alien and on alien Giger was there making, making those, you know, Giger made that space jockey. Giger was making that shit on set and to have Giger again, bring them and let them run wild on those Harkoning sets. Like as Mm -hmm. Jesse talked about the furniture, like just, you know, building all that, that's good. That would probably have been so amazing to see, you know, didn't you, didn't you see the chairs and the table when you were filming the documentary? Aren't those in his museum? Yeah, we did for sure. It was, it was incredible. We spent a lot of time shooting B-roll of them, but yeah, it it was pretty, it was pretty amazing, you know? Did you sit in one of them? <laughs> no, nah, we couldn't go. To, yeah, you, you can't, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was really cool seeing all that, you know. But uh, yeah, imagine him just that and doubled or tripled him. Uh, it would have been incredible because when he did Poltergeist 2 and all that shit, they didn't fly him to the US. They just gave his concept art to people to recreate. And that's why it wasn't as successful. Uh, all right. Others. Those are things for other tales. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> um, yeah. So David Lynch will get a, got attached to Dune May 21st, 1981 and um, March 1983 through September 1983. Lynch shoots the live action components of Dune and uh, December 3rd, 1984, Dune is released. Uh, it was budgeted at 40 million and then it grossed 30 million. And that was considered a huge flop. I mean, it lost, ten, I, mean, I guess, an 84 standard. That's a losing 10 million is a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, plus all the advertising and stuff, I'm sure they did inflated the budget past that. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, also I guess- something that was billed as Star Wars for adults, which is like, you're, you're really throwing the gauntlet down by both comparing yourself to Star Wars while simultaneously insulting it that yours is going to be. <laughs> 
far more sophisticated. I think that it, it would have needed to be a huge hit money wise. I'm, I'm sure they made all the money back on the toys. I'm yeah. sure it was fine. <laughs> How were the toys? <laughs> I love the toys. Uh, oh. but yeah, they did. They, they very quickly ended up in the bargain bins at many toy yeah. shops. <laughs> I was Search through uh, the old newspapers online and uh, find the June adverts and the start off at like you know five ninety nine and then the next month it's like three ninety nine and then one ninety seven and ninety nine pence for two or something. Oh man, well, seems I... like that would have been a good way to get a whole toy line pretty cheap back in the day. <laughs> man, I I was oh. I lived in the toy stores back then because I was that age and man, I don't have much memory of seeing them. That's what kills me. I've got most of them and I love them. They're beautiful sculpts. They're five inches where the Star Wars line was only three and a half and the accessories and the painting and the details. I mean, it's tough when you only have six figures and there's four baddies and two good guys. That's a very small universe. Um, <laughs> but they but they had, uh, they oh, had you know, pistols the and they had a sandworm. That was ours. Yeah, the Baron figure. Yeah, yeah, they've all got like battle action. No, they're, they're fabulous <laughs> figures. Uh, really love the LJN you know, sculpt. Uh, he almost looks to me just, uh, you know, in the small zoom window here, he kind of reminds me of the Dan Aykroyd's character from the real Ghostbusters cartoon who didn't look anything yeah. like Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Such a trip. Yeah. The worm. Oh, oh, oh nice. Jesse's he's got his baron out. <laughs> he's, he's got, they've all got like battle action. He's got his little fat suspensor belt. You can see he's goth because he's got painted black toenails, right? Oh, like that's he's amazing. Ready to the, uh, the Harkonnen. So it's like, oh, here, kids, here's the baron. You can go uh, torture and murder your own twink at home. You know? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, he should have come with his, like, as you called him, little twink sidekick. <laughs> my favorite though of, of all the weirdest things ljn did is the fade figure which is beautiful and it has this sculpt where you can you can kind of get him to to you know battle action he comes with a little a uh, rat cat uh, drug antidote torture torture device to to torture oh, super wow. hawat with like of all the weirdest here kids you know you can play with the, the, the drug animal you know it's like what a strange, uh, strange yeah. thing to include. They, they were like great sting. toys, though. They, they, this is one of the oh, uh, nice. copy modes of oh, wow. an alternative mold afraid there. The Sting's head. So he does a look like work. Sting, because that was it's always whole... with the, the Star Wars characters. They like didn't have the rights to any of the actors' faces, <laughs> right? I just felt like none of the characters. Also, they were so tiny, I guess. Yeah. How can you get any real definition? <laughs> Holy crap. I love Mine. that you guys are having a, a battle of the toys here. <laughs> Dude, that is so awesome. Oh, oh, the Sardaukar no pistol, right? You know? Sardaukar <laughs> pistol. Again, uh, I will remind our audience to, oh, what is that? Oh, in the box. <laughs> nice. This is like the comparing your scars scene from Jaws here. Another reminder to oh. the audience to get the Electric Now app yeah. for free. You can see video of everything they're holding up. It's incredible. <laughs> I am blown away. Oh my god. I'm so jealous. I don't have any I think of that. we clearly picked the right guests for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> the wow. merch off. Mark, I merch wanted, down. Mark, do you have uh, the sculpt of of the gurney of the gurney figure? Do you have any of the prototype sculpts that didn't get made or Unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't have a full figure. I know someone who's got several of them, but I do have a, a sculpt. Oh, wow. Gurney's wow. head, amazing, and you can see his uh, ink vine scar as well. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. 
<laughs> yeah, because he's in the catalog, but they, we never got the figure, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, All man. right. Well, moving on from <laughs> toy comparison. Wow. I'm blown away by that. We almost had a Patrick Stewart action figure from Dune. Was he going to come with the ballast set? Get one of his Picards. Uh, just, just a go nothing. Paint but people have taken uh, Picard heads and stuck them on all the trading. Close enough. Makes sense. All right. Let me. Uh, all right. So, all right. Lynch's Dune came out. It didn't do well. But for us here, we were all became huge Dune fanatics because of that movie. 1996. Uh, it goes silent until 1996 when Richard Rubenstein, the, the producer behind Dawn of the Dead and Pet Cemetery, the old school Pet Cemetery. And who was going to make Ramiro's The Stand? That's right. Coming and back to The Stand here in Rospo Pallenberg. Yeah, connection there. Yeah. And then he got the rights. Yeah. He acquired the rights to Dune in 1996. And then um, he wanted to do it as a film. But then eventually in November 18th, 1999, it's announced that he's producing the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries. And what's interesting is that uh, Vitaro Stellaro, am I saying his name right? The, the DP from Apocalypse Now, Last Emperor Reds. He designed, he, he signed on to that project as a director of photography, and he was going to be the DP of Jodorowsky's Dune. And when Jodorowsky's Dune didn't happen, he went off and did Apocalypse Now. So, oh, but, wow. but he ended up wow. DPing the Sci Fi Channel one. So he ended up in getting, he ended up uh doing dune anyway so and then in 2000 yeah right what a and then in 2008 uh rubenstein comes back he partners up with paramount pictures to produce again a future a feature-length film and then may 17th 2008 it is announced that peter berg is going to direct dune for paramount and um weird choice i mean i like some of his stuff i very much like him as an actor but what what movie was what year did you say this was this is 2008 let me look that up that's a good point because i known him he's i mean, I mean you know because he's kicked his cure off with very bad things which is you don't really think that and oh Dune. that's right had he because then he did friday night lights the movie which was big which is pretty big i mean which was uh well I mean, it was um, very well. God, man, 31 credits. Holy shit. Okay, so he did the rundown in 2003. Friday Night Lights, 2004. The Kingdom, which I still haven't seen, 2007. Hancock in 2008. So this is before Hancock or he just shot Hancock? The Kingdom was a, a big visual movie, right? Am I thinking of the... Yeah, was that shot in a... Was that desert... Yeah, I, I don't remember. I, I've never seen it. It's Middle East. Oh, wait, so, I'm confusing this with a completely different movie. This is a it's it's Jamie <laughs> it's a modern war movie. Uh, yeah. A team of U.S. government agents are sent to investigate the bombing at an American facility in the Middle East. All right. So there's that Middle East. Um, well, anyway, so I'm going back to my feelings that this is an interesting choice for them, given the work he has done so far. Uh, yeah. I'd say Friday Night Lights was his best movie then and that was you know a character drama about small town football so exactly the kingdom like you said it was big it was pretty i mean it, it people knew it was out like it, it was a pretty big movie and then hancock is about to come out with will smith so 
he's pretty hot at this point as a, as a director. So. And that's often how it works too, is it might've been that people knew Hancock was on the horizon. Yeah. And so he was getting these like uh, bigger opportunities. I, I think maybe when Dune part two comes out, maybe we'll do an episode on, on his version possibly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I read his script a while back. Mark is the one who gave me his script originally. Um, and that's the one that was way more action and, um, I don't know. It, it, it was like he said, maybe it was better. <laughs> we didn't, it was much, no, compared to what we got. Yes. It's, it's, it, but I bet it was the studio like that, that was forcing him to do something that's like, it, it doesn't really fit the mold of what it's, what, what it should have been, you know? So June brought to you by the director of battleship basically yeah <laughs> yeah ex- <laughs> exactly yeah, um, I, I i do yeah, watch when, battleship when, every time it's on when part two comes out we can go into further detail about the peterberg one because i do yeah think that, that ho- that's a very interesting what if road we could have gone down yeah or the so, industry could have gone down rather and then uh, eventually um uh, I'm going to cut some ends here because we'll probably cover this in the future. And then um, Peter Berg exits Dune October 29th, 2009. And then the director of Taken comes on board. The, the Leslie, Liam, not Leslie, Liam Neeson. I don't know why I always want to call Leslie Nielsen, Liam Neeson, or Liam Neeson, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. They're, two I mean, they're totally... very similar <laughs> actors. I totally understand. <laughs> Jesus right? Christ. It's my dyslexia, man. They just... <laughs> Yeah, the Taken Helma comes on board. I can't pronounce his name. Um, uh, yeah, Morel, is it? Yeah, you got it, brother. Thank you. Yeah, February 2010, he comes on board to direct. And then Chase, Chase Palmer comes on to write the script. And Josh and I talked about him on our It episode. Um, he was the writer of one of the... Did he write the It we talked about or one of the ones that was unproduced? I can't remember. <sighs> no, I don't remember. Perfect right. reason for the listeners to revisit our It episode. Yeah. <laughs> And then November 2016, Legendary acquires Frank Herbert's classic novel for Dune. And December 21st, 2016, Denise, I can't even say this new director's name again. There you go. (laughs) After Blade Runner 2049, he comes on to direct. And that leads us to today. What a road. Yes. Thank you guys for... (laughs) Oh, this is wild. I wanted to ask a few things now, just since we've got Mark here and Steve, was there any attempt in the 60s or by the late 60s? Did anybody look at it or was it kicking around anywhere before these early versions? Not that I can find. Uh, that Roger Corman one is the first reference mm. I can find to it. Yeah, same here. That Yeah, that's the only variety. That's the only thing I can find as well. It's just like it was. it was brought like in the variety. I really and... wonder what the Corman one. I mean, that, that was at a point where I think Corman was very much trying to branch out from what people expected from him. Cause after that was when he started releasing like Fellini movies in America. And, um, but it, it also very much feels like how like William Castle got the rights to Rosemary's baby. And then it was kind of, it was, you know, like he just had too hot a potato and the industry couldn't allow him to make it as like an actual <laughs> William Castle movie. It's just like, no, you got the hottest book of the year, Billy. Like, you know, you can't, you can't give this your usual William Castle style. 
Yeah, it's weird. There's another article about uh, Roger Corman in uh, 13th of October 1973 in the Montreal Gazette, which is weird because Arthur P. Jacobs' production is already underway at that point, or at least have got the rights. But it says that uh, uh, he's looking to uh, for the rights to two science fiction classics, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land and Frank Herbert's Dune. He sees them as big productions, perhaps starring Peter Fonda in the role of the Martian... Uh, uh, yeah, as a, as a stranger. All right. I, I would have been into uh, Peter Fonda, Stranger in a Strange Land in the 70s. Yeah, like another one they've been trying to make forever, but has right. never. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was a good time for Corman because he was, you know, he's making all these B movies and they're making money and he wanted to step out, but he well, still never is, really does until. This is right around the time where he kind of had stepped away from easy rider right uh mm. oh, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure he probably had that feeling of like oh wait i want to be making these big legit culturally re- relevant movies um because yeah, 2001 comes out in 1968 and then i guess throughout the years you know it just keeps playing <laughs> and playing and playing and people can start seeing now like wait sci-fi we can take it more serious and this book dune has just come out and it's just kill, you know, it was like, you know, it just uh, I should have done a little bit more research on on the impact it had as it came out, because I, I believe in Frank Herbert's bio. He does say that it was like at one point people were stealing it from libraries, <laughs> you know, like it just became like this huge book. And so well, I, uh, I imagine Jacobs wanted it to be another Planet of the Apes franchise. Yeah, because yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was kind of running its course at that point. Yeah, exactly. They're up to the third film at that point. Sadly, I've never really, I, I never really got in. I, I saw those movies when I was a kid, but I haven't seen them since. So they'd be all new watches. I, I they're fun, are they? Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess I, 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 uh, mileage may vary. As we were just talking about <laughs> loving Lynch's Dune, which is also yeah. a movie notoriously disliked by most people yeah so. I, guess, I guess but i heard there's one sequel that's crazy and that's the one i'm trying to seek that's the one i guess i will seek out and watch but i, well, I, I mean, crazy I, different ways conquest i think is is interesting story wise uh the second one beneath i think has the more ludicrous story elements though uh <laughs> I want to jump in and just give a plug because i hadn't seen it in years but on the off chance any of our listeners have not seen the Jodorowsky Dune documentary, please do yourself a favor. Yeah, you it's an incredible film. And and it ends, and I, I just watched it again for the first time in years, and it ends with this beautiful thing with, with Jodo talking about how he dreams of somebody taking his script and making an animated feature of it, some other director doing that. Now with the Villeneuve out, that seems very unlikely, but I had never heard of a Ralph Bakshi possible connection. So now you've got me thinking, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> if there had been or if there could be. Um, so, you know, those of us who love Jodorowsky and, and his very, like, divergent from Frank Herbert vision. I mean, the closest we can get, unless you're like Steve and you've gone through his show, his movie Bible is to read the Incal uh, Mobius graphic novels or the Meta Barons, which is also incredible. I mean, those are like basically the Jodo Dune without the Dune skin. It's just a slight tweaking of the spice to become an oil and things like that, but it's <laughs> very much his universe. Um, well, thank you for the kind words and also, yeah, thank you. Jesse's always been very supportive of the doc. Thank you. Uh, but I, I read, I got to try to find more on it. He, tr- uh, I, I think Universal actually approached him at one point to make the Meta Barons. 
Oh, wow. And wow. That would have been that would be very crazy. <laughs> like it's like Excalibur in space in a way. It, yeah. I mean, well, just the aesthetic. I mean, I can't even explain. It's so gorgeous. Uh, yeah. The Meta Barons. I would love to see. Uh, uh, but you think uh, in the age of big budget streaming uh, prestige television, they could do something like that now? You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know I'm sure it's... someone is trying or trying mm-hmm. to talk their boss into doing it. Uh, I mean, I, I think Yodorowsky is known for not being the easiest person to work with. I don't know. I hope that's he's not getting in his own way on that. I yeah. think part of the problem with the Mobius uh, artwork, though, is that it's all tied up with his, his widow, isn't it? Oh, is it? Oh, lots of legal disputes over who owns those artworks. Because uh, in France, it's the artist owns the artwork, unless there's a contract otherwise. And apparently, the contract no longer exists if there <laughs> was one to start with. So, yeah. mm. a contract from 40 years ago <laughs> is long gone. <laughs> Yeah, it's she. Uh, when we got screened at Cannes, there was uh, we got called out of the theater because there were people there to stop the projection. What? Well, yeah, but thank very thankfully, uh, Cannes kept the movie rolling. Wow, <laughs> yeah, well, we're just no- because because you were showing images from the book from the ink. Yeah. Oh my god, wow, uh, yeah, from the storyboards because uh, wow. Michelle said, Oh he had all that we got all the stuff from him because he had it all because he paid for it all he so we were able to use it but mobius had just passed away not that long ago and he, i mean he was he was he you know and then um yeah his widower sent uh the people and she she wasn't even with him when he was designing all that stuff you know she came later on but but still yeah she was she was trying to sc- stop the screening of it it was it was a trip but the- that's wild. <laughs> I wanted to interject something that's a little bit sideways because I had not I didn't remember that the Herbert family didn't like Star Wars and was mad about it. Very understandably, um, you know, who else hated Star Wars? And I remember him talking about it was our dear and much lamented, and much missed friend, Stuart Gordon. He hated Star Wars. I didn't he, know that. If you if you got him talking <laughs> about it, he would just start even. And he didn't get you know worked up about a lot, but he really, really hated Star Wars. And he'd give you a whole longer list of reasons why. But on a human level, I don't know that it's substantiated, but he there there is some suspicion. A lot of he had a three piece, very successful piece of theater at the Organic in the early seventies called Warp, um, which was a, his huge science fiction fiction epic that probably ran to close to nine hours total. All three plays, huge Holy hit, crap. ran for a long time in Chicago. It went to New York in the first in the first uh, the, they did the first play on Broadway, and it only lasted eight performances. It bombed. It had bad reviews, and it was a rough experience for the theater company. They're one time going to to New York, you know, with a Neil Adams design production. It was incredible stuff, but there is some belief, and I don't know that it's ever been substantiated or proven, but that a certain um, very influential creative figure behind uh, behind the Jedi movies may have seen that Broadway <laughs> iteration and and uh, and taken a lot from it. Mm. I think some people believe that. Mm. So, so yeah, Stuart was pretty sore about that. I also say for the audience as relates to Stuart Gordon and how I even met Jesse the first time was when Jesse was playing uh, well, I, the villain, but I guess reanimator is known for having uh, multiple villains, but playing Dr. Hill and Stuart Gordon's reanimator, the musical. Yeah, Jesse that, that was, was the, got to sing holding his own severed head. You don't see that a lot. Oh. <laughs> it was a very special. Yeah. I got decapitated 200 times on stage around the world. 
And uh, I mean, because Stewart adapted his own movie for the stage, it was just a really special experience to work with someone who is like an artistic hero since youth. I mean, he was such a wonderful and generous colleague. And uh, and yeah, I just, how, you know, I was just thinking about him and his connection to, to Star Wars as well. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. What a trip. I would have loved to have seen that that play <laughs> well, you know what's so far yeah no read about warp that's a wild story but like he had a whole he had a whole shtick about it he was just like well what about the millions of people on the death star don't they have a right to life you know like <laughs> doing their jobs you know he was he, he would Very give her this Stuart whole spiel <laughs> you know? uh, yeah <laughs> you know? so, so kevin smith stole the bit from clerks from that as yeah, well about exactly. all the people on the death star dying. <laughs> that was they had the Steve same thought yeah um, well, maybe a good way to wrap up since, you know, we, we're now going to get a, a Dune 2 or Dune Part 2. Um, and not even that movie specifically, just thinking of if they keep making more Dune movies, because there's so much existing Dune material, proper material from Frank Herbert, and also this whole vast extended mythology that his son Brian and what's the co-author who does all those books? Kevin J. Anderson. Um who people should look him up. He's got an interesting uh, career in his own right beyond those books. Um, but uh, what is something, what do you guys kind of hope for from the franchise? Like what, what directions would you like it to go? What things from the books do you really hope they would keep into the movies? So um, book four is God Emperor of June. Yeah, I was wondering uh, if you're. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's my personal favorite book um, out of the series. And it's a bit div divisive, perhaps no, not so much as Heretics and Chapter House that Jesse likes so much, uh, which I enjoy, but God Emperor is, is my favorite. And that is basically a huge worm, half human, half worm, uh, which would be brilliant to see, but whether or not we actually get to that point in the series, I don't know. Well, and that's one of those like only in great, success right can we get there because when game of thrones started i was mm -hmm. i was like this is such a perfect thing to adapt this way though because of the fact that there's so few monsters and magic in the first season of that show because i'd read the all the books that existed at that point and my friends who like weren't really into fantasy they were like i don't really like fantasy like i don't like lord of the rings or whatever you know but i really like game of thrones and it was kind of like well just wait because eventually you're going to have giants riding like woolly mammoths and a bunch of dragons and forest people and stuff. And, and uh, Dune is definitely like, well, you know, it kind of starts like, uh, you know, the basic sci-fi. We got a little of the monsters with the dunes. Uh, and then it just keeps getting weirder. We get Paul in his like worm-based Iron Man suit. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it that he has. Or not Paul, uh, Leto. Leto the second. Yeah, and then full-on kaiju hybrid yeah. worm emperor. Yep. But we would get Jason Momoa that? back yeah. in there. I know, lots yeah. of Jason Momoa. I want him in all six or seven movies, you know, just keep bringing him back. Mm -hmm. uh, how about you, Jesse? No, God Emperor is great because it has incredible action sequences, but for being such a monster-sized book, it's mostly these long philosophical dialogues. It's so... Is so literate and it's so full of just kind of high concept, uh, universal vision. I mean, the fact that the fact that Frank has a vision, ten thousand, well, eight thousand years in the future, plus another ten thousand years or, or however many years over the the six book span. You know, by the final two books, there are almost no identifiable characters from the the beginning of the universe. We have the Bene Gesserit, and that's it. Everybody else is new or a vague descendant 
Um, I think the most interesting characters for me personally, we get in the final two books who are the honored maters who are almost kind of like a, a mirror image, sinister take on the Bene Gesserit trope. They're these very powerful women, but they're not really interested in preserving or advancing humanity. They're much more mercenary and kind of, you know, animalistic and violent. Uh, the honored maters are incredible characters. And, uh, and, and there's this, there's these godlike figures that kind of, there's, I don't know, it almost gets very interdimensional. What, what I think is so beautiful about the last couple books is, you know, uh, Bev has died of cancer, Frank's wife. And Frank is, I, I mean, you can correct me, Mark, because you probably would know better, but I think Frank is terminal as he's finishing Chapter House Dune. And so there's this wonderful awareness of mortality in these books, and they almost become a meditation on life and death. And there's almost these interdimensional characters casting a net through the universe coming in and out of the awareness of the other characters. That's never fully explained or established. Um, and we also get space Jews. We also get Jews in space. And it's not, um, <laughs> not, it's not the Mel, like Brooks. Mel Brooks. Yeah. They're, you know, but they're, they're, fan they're fabulous space Jews, you know. How about so, you, yeah, Steve? I, I, yeah. Oh, me. I mean, I hate to say it and to put it out. I've only read the first book because I have dyslexia and I have a real, it took me forever to read dune because of my dyslexia it was difficult and then when jodorowsky agreed to do dune then it was like i have to read this and i had a limited time and um i you know it took me a really long time i was even finishing it up on the flight to <laughs> paris i finally i was able to finish it all but it was because it, it took me many years I, I would start it and those first like 80 pages would just like defeat me. And I'm like, I can't do this. It's, uh... I, couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. And then eventually, but I, I just recently realized like all these things are on audiobook now. So I need to start. Yeah, I was just going to say. I collect them. I have the books and I always want, because I love the covers. I love the arts of all the editions and I need to read. And I always feel bad because Jesse always brings them up to me. I never have the heart to tell them. <laughs> You've been so living a lie, Steve. <laughs> I've never been able to. I can't. I because uh, yeah, man, my dyslexia has, has been really horrible with reading. It's um, it's very very difficult because I read backwards. Like I can't read a menu when I go to a restaurant because my my eyes look at a hundred different things at once. And then eventually I need to come together. Like, all right, you now need to start going. <laughs> and that's how I read books. Unfortunately, my eyes. I have a hard time. I have a hard time reading text because of my eyes and how they work. And thank God for this program called Grammarly that now I'm able to write faster than I used to because mm. I had to write multiple drafts of scripts because I used to write backwards. And now I'm able to cut down a lot of my time because I have Grammarly. Now I'm able to write and now have a program to help put it in a correct order, you know? So that's, yeah, mind of dyslexia. It kind of, it sucks. But now I am going to, I am going to start listening to them because I can't unfortunately read them. I wish I could, but um, yeah, my, my uh, dyslexia is pretty bad with reading. Did you guys see the latest interview with Denny Villeneuve where he talks about if it all goes well, that he will want to make a third one, that he would do Dune 2 and then Dune Messiah and then he'd be done. That, that, that's all he seems to want to do with the books interesting well in the, you know I, I mean i would i mean that's what kills me about david lynch was that he was going to have full control over the next movie if dune did well and he wrote the wow. script and he was going to have full control to do whatever he wanted with that 
that's what always kills me about that one is like, Although, oh, as we talked about again to pimp uh, previous episodes, as I love to do, if people listen to our Ronnie Rocket episode talking about a famous unmade David Lynch movie, um, we talk about in that, and I think it's uh, one of our guests from Pure Cinema Podcast even brings it up. The idea was that it, the the massive failure and disappointment of Dune really is what sent Lynch off on his post-Dune career. So if Dune had been a success, maybe we never would have got Blue Velvet. I mean, I think we very much wouldn't have gotten it. Mm -hmm. Certainly wouldn't have gotten it when we got it. Yeah, Yeah, or Twin Peaks or Wild at Heart. I mean, who knows what path his career would have had because it was the idea that he didn't have creative control and that he blamed it rightly so, as most people do, of what happens when you, you know, do the dance with big budget movies is uh like well i guess i'll go back to making my little personal one so maybe we were better for it ultimately so so hold up did he write a a second dune screenplay for a sequel it exists does that exist i I can't find it i no, i've never been able to find it but it does exist apparently oh man there's there's references to it in starlog magazines you Mm -hmm. know saying oh that on the on the table that's the script for dune messiah we're just finishing it off now you know and (laughs) I want that script. <laughs> I, I do too. Even though Wait, I it's gotta come out someday. Yeah. I hope hopefully. Wow. But I'm I'm curious to go back to what Jesse is saying. Like the Dune 2, I think audiences will probably, if they haven't read Dune, I think they'll be more comfortable with that one because I guess it's gonna be more of action. I, I wonder. I mean, I can't imagine him not putting more action in that one. Yeah, um, I think he said Villeneuve said that you know the first one is him setting up the playground, and the second one is his him playing in the playground. <laughs> so he's very much looking forward to doing part two, apparently. Yeah, and with the fact that they're giving him a forty-five day theatrical window means let's hope it blows the doors off. And if it's really profitable, then maybe that will be the momentum for the a third one. You know, yeah, that's that w- the goal. That would be that would be awesome. But when does the TV show come out? It's not announced yet. There's very, very little information about it. Yeah, I think it's still a somewhat hypothetical at this oh, point. It is. But so I mean, been... if okay. now the movie's there's... been successful, I think there's more of a they, reason. They had, for... uh, they had uh, staff writers um, on it and uh, stuff like that. But I, th- I think it was meant to start filming last year. But obviously, oh, do you know? Do they actually have like episode they, they scripts? I believe some scripts are written, or at least people were working okay. on the scripts. I'm not sure what how far they got. And there was a, a date on an industry website of when it was meant to start filming. If that was official or not, I don't know. But obviously, with COVID happening, nothing happened on that front. Oh, who, who knows? <laughs> Uh, and, and and I will say as an afterthought here, not that George Lucas needs my defense of him. I think that guy's doing OK. But thinking of <laughs> Herbert being mad that Star Wars lifted things uh, from his book. But it's like having just reread uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy for the first time since high school. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of doing lifted a lot of stuff from the foundations. The whole idea of a galactic empire and the idea of like kind of creating a religion over time like the Bene Gesserit of doing of basically you know planting these ideas on these worlds to a further end game yeah it does seem seem that George Lucas uh wants to be sued by or people want to sue George Lucas (laughs) so 
<laughs> who who created Star Wars is up for debate. Yeah. Whether it's Frank Herbert or <laughs> Stuart Gordon or uh, Asimov. I like the Stuart uh, Gordon conspiracy theory more. That's a yeah. that's a fun new one. But you know, and that's something I love about Joe Dorowski is like everyone thought he was so crazy to have a twelve or twenty hour vision for his story. It's just like, well, that's what the whole Star Wars universe ended up being. It was just no one could see that there was money to be made doing this in bite-sized chunks at yeah, the time. Just, just yeah. on that point, uh, that's a, a myth that Frank Herbert himself started. The The runtime for Jodorowsky was oh, right? about two and a half hours, uh, Jodorowsky <laughs> said himself in <laughs> okay. an interview. He seems to have jumped on board his own myth now that he created the miniseries before <laughs> oh, it was a miniseries. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I think Frank Herbert saw the, the big Bible and thought that was a script. Oh. And if that was a script, then yes, it would be 10 hours, but that was all the storyboards. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the long, yeah, I guess it could be over three hours easily because we don't know how how long some of the storyboarded scenes would go on for. But he was definitely focusing on a lived in world. He was definitely he was obsessed with it. And you could tell by, you know, he, you've read the script and seen the storyboards. It's like, yeah, I mean, like I said, like the ball sequence, like how long would that have lasted that movie? Because <laughs> he was just he went all in with that sequence. And it was just like, this is insane. You know, throwing dogs into fountains and disrespecting water There's all kinds of batshit stuff that's just going on throughout that thing. <laughs> you know, so I'm just excited to hear that there was going to be a hippo wrestling <laughs> oh yeah no then mark has like storyboards of uh there was this harkonnen party and it was like they were like in fountains of red wine like this weird oh, man like fucking uh see if i can bring something all <laughs> no it was it's insane like some of the stuff that he was like i like he said he he you know he was really um he was really, what's the word I'm looking for? He was really finding influence and in all this stuff and how to stretch it out and then add his own um, aesthetic into it. It was like a perfect match. So it, is, it And it is weird reading these treatments and seeing how kind of some of the stuff was in his version, you know? Like when, when the Duke Leto in the very beginning goes to see the emperor, first he comes to the emperor's puppet and then he gets kind of, throwing down a trap shoot to uh to uh talk to him in person i don't know what mark is grabbing mark here, here? Yeah. I, I was going to share my screen but apparently that's been disabled so uh, i'll reference the see if i can find the right page oh mark has like uh the script one of the scripts oh here we go w. yeah with the original uh, uh, uh there's oh, the... wow, there's the, he's holding up storyboard of the hippo wrestling. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> we got to get oh, a picture marvelous. of that one. I'll, uh, send you, I'll, send, I'll send you an image of it. Yeah, perfect. We can yeah, we'll post, post it on the we'll post it on the, the socials. Uh, well, it, is that even... I mean, sorry. I'm sorry. Is that bind? Is that, how is that bound, by the way? Um, It's like a giant spring at the the base so if you if you pulled it open it would really oh, okay i see it's just like a big spring so like before mobius came on board it was it's expect it was this artist that did some drawings before mobius in the very early um incarnation of it 
like since the movie has come out, there's all kinds of art that's been coming out about Jodorowsky's Dune, and we've just been constantly back and forth with it. <laughs> just like <laughs> it's, anyway. it's incredible after all these years, you know, Im- new images are still coming to light. Yeah, amazing. Uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, well, does anyone have any final thoughts as we wrap up this wonderful epic chat, Steve? Uh, no, I think I'm all good. All actually. right. Well, uh, I thank Jesse and Mark so much for coming on. And maybe, you know what, we'll have you both back on to talk about Peter Berg's script when Dune Part 2 come, actually comes out, since hopefully that will not be another unmade movie. <laughs> um, do you guys have, uh, yeah, especially Mark, give them the Dune, uh, your website and socials info. Yeah, it's uh, duneinfo.com and uh, duneinfo on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, all the socials. Uh, and Jesse, where can people find you on the socials? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, uh, on Twitter. I'm J-E-S-S-E-M-E-R-L-I-N. And on Instagram, I'm at Jesse underscore Merlin. Um, easily found. <laughs> and you can find us on Instagram at Best Movies Never Made and on Twitter at Never Made Film, where we like to post concept art and videos and general fun stuff. I also recommend that you get the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you to watch movies, TV show. Most relevant for you guys, though, is you can see video versions of our podcast on this one in particular. That's the only way you can see Mark and Jesse's uh, toy showdown they had. <laughs> um, I don't know when that'll be up. I think uh, our our video episodes are usually several months behind our actual audio podcast. Um, but I want to thank everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, I am Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.